Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I'm your host, Brad Redding. And today we have a special guest who I'll let share and intro himself here in a second. But before we do that, I just want to go through some things we'll be running through today for you. Some interesting topics. So we we're just running through all the topics. We have a giant list here. So we may not get through everything, but we'll be talking through protecting brand equity for fashion apparel, luxury, brand marketing versus conversion tracking or direct marketing, CRO, marketing, incrementality testing. So we got a lot to cover. Hopefully you get through everything. So Jacob, welcome to the pod. Please give everyone a quick intro and then we'll dive right in. Hey, everybody. My name is Jacob Hegberg. I'm located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Started doing digital marketing in 2007. I was really, really fortunate and super blessed to have a billionaire that literally took me under his wings and said, Hey, Jacob, we got to figure out this digital marketing thing. It's the way of the future. What I tell you that still works today is advertising, organic, and building a list, you know, even 15, whatever years later. Yeah. And just the, the tactics and the strategies and some of the details, but ultimately it still works. So you've spoken at SEM Rush events, which for those that aren't familiar with SEM Rush, it's the go-to in terms of organic SEO tooling and, and even just their own content. But SEO, you cut your teeth in SEO and you've evolved over the last 15, 16 years. So you have that breadth and a depth across that digital marketing vertical. Yeah, certainly SEO has changed. That's where I, I got started and then added each channel really to my repertoire from that. Spoken for SEM Rush at many conferences, and then also an ambassador for Majestic SEO as a tool as well. Yeah, nice. Well, Jacob and I, we've emailed as we have mutual customers, so it's been a lot of email communication a lot over the last couple of years. So excited to to get in here. Speaking of conference, I'm going to plug the Elevar Summit. So Elevar Summit is Tuesday, October 10th. Just go to summit.getelevar.com to join. It's going to be a great one-day event. It's going to be super tactical. So if you like this podcast, you like all the content that we'll be bringing in, experts are bringing in for that. All right. So Jacob, I'm going to tee us up here. We were just actually talking about people who go to conferences and they're taking notes and they're going home and you have those that succeed in implementing what they're learning and those that don't succeed or they don't take action. What's your experience? I mean, what makes a conference great where you're actually someone's able to take something, learn and implement? You no, know, I've probably been to 100 plus conferences and I would say the biggest takeaway that you can have is really figuring out listening and then seeing what you can pull up, right? When you take that home, you're going to always go home with your notebook full of 50 things on there, but maybe circling the top two or three things you can actually do with your team and your organization. Yeah. And then asking, is it relevant to your niche or your business? What would be for someone that's going to, I don't know, let's take Elevar Summit. So if someone's coming to Elevar Summit and they're learning a few different tactics, is it is it finding, okay, what's on our short-term roadmap for the next three months? And then there's this phrase I like to use, it's not what's taught, it's what's caught at a conference. So is it just trying to teach yourself to be disciplined on don't get the shiny object syndrome, just focus in on what resonates with what you have in your next three to six month roadmap and try to use this new learning to backfill? Or is it something else that you'd recommend? I think that, you know, when you go to the conference, one of the things that happens is you get shiny object syndrome, like you said there, and trying to figure out what is the best technology to use, what should you implement, what actually works on that. And what I think happens is you go, you sign up for those technologies, and most of them don't actually do anything. They're not a magic bullet. 
One thing I can recommend is, right, I've used your product for many, many years. So you go to conference, you learn, you get a bunch of tools recommended and it's going through embedding. Okay. Let's go into protecting brand equity for fashion apparel luxury. I think that's that's your niche, correct? As you primarily operate in there. So maybe just talk through that. Can we unpack that a little bit? What does that mean? What does protecting brand equity mean? So when you work on some of your own websites or a website that's not, say, in fashion apparel or maybe requires a more elevated experience, you just can't go and start doing things. You just can't go and start changing colors on things. You have to use certain imagery, right? Maybe a certain button color like red would perform incredibly well on a site for Add to Cart. Not always the case. Yeah. But, you know, on a luxury site, you just can't go and have a red Add to Cart button on that. The expectation there is probably black, a charcoal, or gray. Yeah. So is it for maybe a brand where they may not be that aspirational or you consider them a staple brand, but they want to get there? So is it following these early indicators or standards in order to not divert them off that path where they turn into you know their, their sales every other week or things that might not be in line with that long-term brand equity for a, a fashion or apparel brand? Yeah. For them, I mean, the most important asset that they have is, is their brand and everything. So they're extremely protective over their copy, their imagery, right? And some of those things that you might use for a direct response might not necessarily be appropriate. They might talk to their customers in a certain way. For example, imagine an image out by a pool, right? For an apparel company on that. Well, for an elevated luxury company out by the pool, maybe there's a cabana and there's going to have to be pillows on all the chairs that are laid out or pads and everything. That's what their customer is expecting when they go to travel. And if you don't have that in your imagery, it's not going to make sense to them. Who are a couple brands, whether it's brands you work with or you don't work with, but who are a couple that people could visualize in their head as we're, we're talking through this? You know, if I look at one that I really believe is like a leader in UX and conversion, I would look towards Burberry. I think they do a great job just testing, being open to different things that work. I feel like they really push the limits and their team must allow them to do certain things and try certain things. Yeah. So Burberry's, how long have they been around? Oh, forever. Heritage brand on that. Yeah. What would be another brand that's maybe started in the last, I don't know, 20 years, 10, 10 to 20 years? Gucci, not recent, but I look at a brand that's made tremendous strides. I would say Gucci, honestly. And that's not necessarily who you would think about in terms of like conversion or anything, but you look at what they've done on their PDPs or their websites, they've done some great things. Another great brand is uh, Golden Goose on that. I think they do some great things on their site for conversion in certain areas and some other things that maybe I wouldn't. I think they've got some really great PDPs for you. They're the sneakers, right? The shoes? They are. I think my wife had a cart open for like eight months or 10 months waiting to get her the pair of Golden Gooses. <laughs> no, but you look at this to your point, right? So now imagine you're a brand and you don't have a full line. You don't carry footwear on it, but maybe you're a clothing brand. You sell shirts, but you have to show a full body picture that making sure that your models are styled appropriately is so important, right? You know, if you're selling a $300 shirt, the person can't be wearing a $20 pair of shoes. Like that's really important in those soft signals. And is this the, when the brand marketing versus the, hey, we're just marketing to maximize conversion, maximize profit? Where does that balance? How does that balance fit in with this, again, protecting the brand equity overall, all else? I think you protect brand equity at all costs in every channel. And trying to make sure that you have consistent marketing communication across the board is important from discounts to your voice and tone, right? Like the SEOs, I would say, are the, in just experience in that channel, are the most likely to 
go completely broke from that. I would say the next are probably your, your paid search Google ads people. That usually there's a little more control on Facebook and Instagram, but people go rogue and do crazy things in their own sites. Could you give a few examples? So what would be going rogue with a Google ads campaign or, or copy? Yeah, I think it would be like the examples of the copy that they're using on that. For example, if you were a trying to market to maybe a luxury audience, top one or two percent of households, you would maybe use words like invite you like we invite you to visit our website right instead of like buy now on that like those are just be things that they they wouldn't want you to use based on your experience with working with a lot of these fashion and luxury brands what are some other just tips that you would recommend in that balance of brand marketing versus just direct marketing that is either worked or maybe what might be even more beneficial for people to take away their listening is what has not worked Sure. I think on the brand marketing side, when you're in the performance marketing arena, you're always looking at conversion, CPA, CAC, et cetera, on that return on ad spend. You look at the brand marketing teams and you're like, oh my gosh, what are these people doing? They have these tremendous budgets. What did we just spend money on over here? So I think it's helping them understand what is working and not working for them. And what's hard for you, right, is they're working much higher up in the funnel and they just need swings at the bat and they need to know what works and what doesn't work. For example, some celebrity influencers have worked great and others have been terrible or getting the customer lifetime value back on those campaigns and say, this celebrity moved the most revenue. Oh my gosh, none of those customers came back and purchased. Man, they're all buying from us because they wanted that celebrity and that was aspirational reach for that person. But, you know, a typical person then couldn't afford to come back and buy our product. That seems like with a celebrity example where you are looking at second, third, you know, nth number of order, what does that time frame look like? So if you have a brand marketing team that engages with a celebrity, gets someone on board, is that a, a three-month evaluation? Is that a six-month, 12-month evaluation? Again, looking at what's that returning customer rate? So that's part one of the question. And then part two is, what are you using to measure that? So what's the incrementality measurement? If, if again, it's not a direct marketing, it's well, you mentioned LeBron James. What are some ways that you've seen brands just measure the impact or the influence on that celebrity? So the first thing that we see is like when the campaign launches, what is your quick hit revenue that you get? And then over the next 30, 60, 90 days on that while you're running, and hopefully you got permission to use those assets of the celebrity. How much is that driving in terms of revenue and new customers to the website, I think is important. And then really understanding using like a BI tool, like a glue or a peel or something like that to understand like what is your repeat purchase rate. And hey, let's expect a lower repeat purchase rate from these people. But, you know, is your cycle, is your normal repeat purchase rate 25%, right? And then is your time between your first purchase and most importantly, your second purchase? 90 days, 180 days, et cetera on that. It's really important to understand that it's not always average time to next purchase. It's really the gap between the first and second. Okay. Before we get really deep into conversion optimization, when you have this type of campaign running where it's very celebrity PR focused, are you still operating and implementing conversion optimization experimentation? So you're running, whether it's, yeah, I just, I'll leave it out. Open ended question. How does CRO fit when you are running these larger celebrity campaigns? When you're running them, you're still running tests. You're still trying to optimize the celebrity. Oftentimes, we're giving them scripts for a Facebook ad, for example, on that. The big thing about celebrity is you can use it to cut through the noise to garner and get attention, right? 
And it'll help something like a Facebook ads campaign essentially improve on it because somebody will pay attention to a celebrity speaking exactly to them. Or imagine a celebrity in your card abandonment camp, you know, speaking to you and with an image or a video saying, hey, come back and check out. Yeah. How long does that last in your experience? So how long before it just becomes, I don't know, noise or someone just they ignore it or, or they've seen it enough times where it doesn't really have an impact? Being honest with you, we've had assets run on Facebook ads, even post iOS updates for a year plus with various celebrities. Interesting. Okay. So it can go a very, very long time. Some others are, are short lived though. Interesting. So Facebook remarketing, what about email, SMS? Do you include clips, images, videos? We'll do you know an introduction. We'll do various campaign pushes on it. When I have the opportunity to work with one as an ambassador, we'll do little animated GIFs or something like that in there. We got to try to keep image yeah. file size appropriate so it loads on the mobile phone or do a video on that. Those seem to work very, very well because people love that. They love getting something different in their inbox, you know, speaking to them. And then if we go level down from celebrity to maybe a large influencer who is in celebrity status, where does the strategy differ? I would say everybody believes that tier right below, these people are going to still change their business. That's not really what it is. Like some, there will be some great hits, but it's really about consistency and having just a bullpen of these influencers consistently marketing and working on your brand and product and really helping them understand like call to action, helping them understand what you're trying to do as a business because it's not obvious to them. They need to be coached. Again, we give all these people a very, very similar script. If we give them, we tell them exactly what we'd like them to do. And we actually even send them a video example of what we'd like them to say and then ask them this reset in their, in their own words. That's interesting. So instead of just gifting and giving them very rough guidelines, you're giving them a playbook and even an example video of what the ask is. It, exactly on that, because there's some right that just want to take your money and get paid, but they're also ones that want to do a good job for you because they also want to be a part of your product and your brand story. And being honest, to they want to keep getting paid, right? It's way harder for them to like onboard do a thing for one month and then be done to figure out something about your product. It's way easier for them to be consistent over 12 months. Yeah. What's changed? This is actually a really interesting topic. What has changed in the influencer marketing space in the last six months compared to one to two years ago? It seems like it's not a quote-unquote growth hack anymore. It's pretty much commonplace where everyone's doing it, whether it's major or micro influencers. So what's, what's changed and what's working today that, or what's not working today that used to work? I'll tell you, I'm like not the, the foremost expert there on, you know, the micro influencers or anything like that. What I would tell you, though, is the people that are on TV or people have already seen them before. Those are the people that still seem to work. Okay. However, the cost, in my opinion, to play ball there has gone up significantly in recent years. I think also the change to let's call it Spark ads and uh, Facebook whitelisting has also changed things too where there's a little bit less efficiency. Can you unpack that a little bit more? What do you mean? Yeah. So typically what we do, and again, you get the permission uh, to do this when you initially sign up for a campaign with the celebrity influencer is to do whitelisting, where essentially you run ads from their account. You still pay for them with your credit card and everything, but you're giving the appearance as if you're so-and-so celebrity, i.e. just making this up here, Running an ad, you know, if you are Nike from Michael Jordan's Instagram account, that would be an example of whitelisting instead of 
running it from Nike. The user that's scrolling Facebook is seeing Michael Jordan, like his Facebook account promoting Nike. Exactly. And then you know you're reaching Michael Jordan's exact audience and followers too. Not necessarily an interest group that may or may not exist. Yeah. Yeah. One more question before we get into CRO. If we think about, again, more fashion forward or just fashion or luxury brands, many either whether they're on Shopify, Salesforce, wherever they may live, where do some of the marketplaces? So where does Amazon fit into their play? Where do Facebook shops or the new TikTok shop? Where the brand experience is obviously not... They don't have control over the brand experience. Where have you seen this fit into strategies and what maybe has not worked out the way that you may have expected it to? You know, let's start with the Amazon and everything. I would say there are some brands that should be on Amazon and there are some that shouldn't be on there. And again, it's, do you want to control your destiny or not? You know, if I was a Gucci or something like that, probably wouldn't be on Amazon, Right. But I think there are some uh, next tier brands that are maybe in the two to three hundred dollar price point or AOB that it definitely makes sense to be there. I think that your shoppers are there, the ones that are in a Nordstrom or at a Saks, right? They are using Amazon. You probably use Amazon if you're a listener to this podcast. But what happens is there's incredible efficiency if your product is at Amazon. So, for example, instead of using your 3PL or warehouse to fulfill, or maybe you're paying higher shipping rates and costs. Maybe you don't have a two-day shipping on it, and then you got to pay your team. You literally can hit a button that routes your order to Amazon Warehouse and gets it there in two or three days and costs you 5 or $6. And that's that's one of the main reasons you're playing there. Yeah. And what about Facebook or TikTok shops? Yeah. Facebook shops, I think this is changing. You know, the announcement was made that you're going to have to make this mandatory where you uh, check out on Facebook. And otherwise, you're going to lose your product tagging now and into the future. And that's a a really, really big deal to lose all that historic data. I think my biggest challenge that I've seen with Facebook shops, and let's call it Vantage Plus campaigns uh, driving there, is that a lot of those have been incentivized by free shipping from Facebook or to the customer, hey, use the Facebook shop or check out on Facebook shops, then you're going to get $20 off your first $100 purchase on that. And like, that's crazy, right? Of course, that's going to have a higher ROAS and more scale to it. But then for me, as I've been looking through the the data and everything, and this is what I'm a little bit fearful of, is they're not having that brand experience by visiting your site. You're losing remarketing signal. Yes, there is now an opt-in for Facebook to sync to Klaviyo, et cetera, on that email, but you're just still losing your ability to, to remarket. Right. And I think it's going to hurt repeat purchase rate, honestly. Right, because it's almost like the shops is that's collecting the demand that the brand's already created versus generating new demand because they're not able to curate that experience. Exactly, or it's just not even letting the customer have the brand experience. Like, or explore yeah. more depth on, on the site. Or what is the vibe of the brand? What's the feel? I always show this to our clients, and maybe they're upset about it, but a great example niche is jewelry. If you look up in the, the Facebook ads library, and you just type in jewelry, can you really tell the difference between a $10 product and a $500 product? I think it's really tough. Yeah, that probably would get a, an oh crap reaction for, for some. All right. So we, we were chatting about Black Friday or just before we started recording, you were talking about prepping for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. And we're still in August. And for everyone listening, 
we are really trying to extract experts in conversion optimization and give different perspectives, give different viewpoints, potentially different test ideas. Even if you can just take one one strategy or one idea away as you get into Q4 this year for 2023, let's start with some of the most either important areas to touch on site. Probably won't be able to get through every single page type, but I'll hone in just on one area, navigation. So navigation, in my personal experience over the last 15, 16 years in e-commerce, it's always been actually an area that I've tested a lot during Black Friday or, or holiday. And it could be highlighting a sale category or a Black Friday category, moving away distracting elements or you know leaky bucket opportunities in the navigation during a very high direct, like we just want people to convert and not do anything else. In your experience, Jacob, what have you seen or what do you recommend in the world of your navigation mobile desktop during uh, these periods? You guys wouldn't believe this, but I'll tell you every single year, we have a client that doesn't put the Black Friday sale on navigation. It's incredible. So one, I would always have that in that announcement promo bar up at the top. I'd have it in your navigation. We've seen people forget it in mobile. I would definitely put it on your homepage as your main hero on that. And just make sure people are aware that your sale exists. And then when it flips to Cyber Monday, update your nav menu to not say Black Friday sale anymore. Maybe switch it to Cyber Monday and let people know. I think people understand, but we've seen better conversion by switching the message. It may not be true for your brand, but it's worth the test. So just switching the messaging just to keep it slightly different or up to date as the season, the holiday season changes? Correct. Or we see people get cute and try to call it the friends and family sale on it. We've had this miss. I just know that there's, you know, a time of sensitivity and everything right now, but we've had people call it the black sale on it. And that's happened twice, you know, and we've caught that before that's gone down. Yeah. Okay. So let's do a rapid fire across all like major templates. And I just love to hear your top recommended test or experiment or learning lesson that you've taken away in your, your own brand testing experience homepage. So Maybe this isn't your number one ever, but one recommended test or or insight for the homepage. Cool. Rapid fire on you. Homepage on it. Hero, we see it break the website all the time. People send it to the not top performing collection or put a video there. I.e., imagine you're an apparel brand and your top collection is shirts. And all of a sudden you're sending it to watches or something else or bottoms. Got it. Holiday period, your hero main section on the homepage, send it to your top category. Holiday, definitely send it to Black Friday, but in general, otherwise send it to your top category. Okay, cool. Uh, What about video? How does video play into that on the homepage? Every time somebody does a platform migration, leadership gets this idea that they should have an autoplay video on the homepage that's uh, 100 megabytes. And then all of a sudden, the, the website doesn't load anymore and people stop converting. Yeah, especially in mobile. If mobile's on a Wi-Fi, that'd be problematic. All right, product listing page, aka collection page. The number one thing that we see wrong there is people don't put their highest margin bestsellers or the category on top. They always think their site isn't fresh and they need to re-merchandise. And so they put not their best performance on top. And that crushes revenue. So let's play through this one. What's the if you get pushback on that where it is you want to get that fresh experience, what's your rebuttal? Sure. The way I'd merchandise is maybe have a couple new in there. But when I'm looking at, you know, let's say first three to five products, I'd have bestseller in there. I'd have a couple different price points in there if applicable, if your catalog is big enough on that. And mix in freshness, mix in top reviews. Got it. Okay. Product detail page. I think this has been hammered to death a lot. I'm sure other people on your podcast have done reviews of this. Just like you'd have free shipping in the promo bar. 
I think people assume that customers know that you have free shipping. You need to have that, again, usually right under the Add to Cart button. It's okay to have it listed twice. You know that Amazon Prime gets you your package in two days, but you, being the business owner, the marketer, whatever, looking at the site, you sit there and stare at it. Your customer is only there every 90 days or 180 days. They don't know that. So is that, am I hearing free shipping and the shipping expected delivery date? We've actually done tests on the expected delivery date. And you always see that in a conversion playbook that hasn't always won out, surprisingly. Yeah. So that's probably vertical specific, product specific, et cetera. All right. Cart page or mini cart. Well, uh, we've seen this push for shop pay and other accelerated payment methods, PayPal, Amazon pay, Facebook pay, Google pay on that. Uh, the one that I'm going to really, I'm going to make you guys all aware of this. Sometimes that doesn't lead to higher conversion. So I, in my opinion, would just push people through checkout and have them begin that standard Shopify checkout process. Would you recommend testing? You could certainly test that. But oftentimes what we see is that, how do I say this, Brad? I would almost just have a mini cart instead of a slash cart page on Shopify. And then I just push people right into checkout. Not necessarily when they hit add to bag, right? But the slide out, pop up mini cart, whatever you want to say in the drawer, then they click checkout on that. Yeah. It will be interesting to watch the new one-page checkout as that starts to roll out across stores with Shopify and how that might change the accelerated payments, whether it's on a cart page or even in the mini cart where you're bypassing. So that's that'll be one to watch the next couple of months as that takes effect on many stores. Speaking of checkout, so with Shopify, with some major changes going on in checkout today, what are some tips for... You don't have a ton of control in checkout. Checkout sensibility allows you to move modules in. And again, not everyone has, has upgraded to that yet. But what are what are some tips for checkout? Well, everybody says upsell, cross-sell, or customize your checkout. What I would say moves the needle the most is one, removing extra fields. For example, company name in there. Some other things I do is make sure that you have email rechecked in the United States and then SMS not rechecked on that. And then you really need to be smart with mobile and all those accelerated payment methods. I would look in your Shopify reports and check by payment method. And for a lot of brands, Google Pay, one, the logo loads slowly. And then two, they'll find that maybe 1% of all transactions go through it. And it's actually a detractor to everybody else. And it should just be shut off. Yeah, that is a somewhat of a hidden report in Shopify. They think it's a good call out to see what's actually being used and then just potentially removing the analysis paralysis. Exactly. What about on-site search? On-site search, I think this is like a, a brand decision, right? And sometimes you'll just have the search icon, right? Sometimes you'll have that search icon with the little underline where you start typing. And then you can kind of do what we call the big search bar, which is what a Target, a Walmart, an Amazon, a Google has on that. Again, it, you have to figure out what is right for your brand. Then from there, there are plenty of search technologies, right? There's Anastos, there's a Search Spring, there's an Algolia, whatever on that. But getting that to show your recommended products and having good results there so the user finds it. I would say the most hidden thing is most people don't realize that this little tiny thing on your mobile phone or desktop contributes to somewhere like 20 to 25% of all engaged rent, meaning they interacted with Search before they, they made a purchase. Yeah. And unfortunately, in GA4, it's a little bit tougher to get to that report than everyone's used to with universal analytics. So if you are using one of those third-party search tools, it might be easier just to pull that metric 
from there directly. Have you seen that same transition friction in, in going from UA to GA4? Uh, the biggest thing that I feel that is missing is actually the revenue per user metrics or the interaction, like the value of it. Yeah. For all of our clients, we built custom dashboards so that they can do that. And then within Explore, uh, one of the things that always was difficult to get that we can actually get from GA4 now is the like percent usage by day on that. And then the conversion rate as well. There, that was just so hard to pull out of uh, UA. Yeah, that could be its own topic or an episode of just getting into the depths of the user explorer reports within GA4. But Jacob, this was this was great. I think it was learning lesson for me just in getting into the fashion luxury space. And I like the rapid fire on CRO ideas as we approach Q4. Where can folks learn about you, your company, etc.? Sure, they can come visit our website, skydiamondelite.com. Awesome. And then, uh, I don't know, are you uh, LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, X, threads? <laughs> I keep my social media pretty private on there. You can come find me on LinkedIn, uh, Jacob Hagberg, H-H-E-E-E-R-G. Awesome. So we'll have both those linked up in the show notes. You can go check out some of the brands that uh, Jacob and his team work with. Thanks for jumping on and sharing your wisdom. And uh, yeah, any, any other parting thoughts here? No, thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Alrighty. That's the episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. In order to help spread the word and just support the podcast, if you enjoyed this episode, share it on Twitter, share it on LinkedIn, send it to colleagues, or just send me feedback. I love reading feedback. I appreciate it. Many of the guests that have been on here, they've just emailed saying, hey, I'd love to join. Here's some topics. That could be you. Just shoot me an email or hit me up on LinkedIn. My email is brad at getallofar.com. And if you enjoy this podcast and you want to give us a rating, I would appreciate that as well. You can rate us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you are listening to this. But at the end of the day, if you could just share this and let others learn more about the world that you live in, the world that I live in with e-commerce and conversion tracking, I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.